Good evening and welcome to Starfest, the St. Albert Readers Festival. I am Peter Midgley, yes, the festival director and your host for the evening. On behalf of Starfest, thank you for joining us. Now, before we introduce our guests for the evening, and believe me, I am looking forward to this very, very much. I do want to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations and Métis people. You can purchase tonight's book from both Edmonton's independent bookstores, Glass Bookshop and Audrey's Books. Please, the links are in the comments section and also in the description section. Follow the links, buy the book. You won't regret it. After the introduction, our hosts are going to speak for approximately 40 minutes. And after that, there will be a Q&A session. Please do post your comments and questions in the comments section and we will relay them to the to our guests at the end of the evening. Remember, YouTube, you have to log in in order to be able to comment. Now, tonight, we are very pleased to invite Timiro Mohammed to join us. Timiro is a Somali spoken word poet and a former Edmonton Youth Poet Laureate. She is going to do our introductions for the evening and also perform some of her own work. Timiro, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. Hello, everyone, and welcome. As Peter said, my name is Timiro. I'm so excited to be here tonight with you all. Um, before we begin, I'm going to be introducing our amazing guests for the evening. Our interviewer and host this evening, Jesse Lipscomb, is an actor, former athlete, activist, entrepreneur, and producer. He's behind the Flow Power Fitness Program, as well as the co-owner of the fitness studios and restaurants. In 2016, Jesse launched the hashtag Make It Awkward campaign to combat racism, misogyny, homophobia, and hatred of all kinds. Our star guest, Desmond Cole, is an award-winning journalist, radio host, and activist in Toronto. In 2015, his cover story for the Toronto Life magazine exposed the racist actions of the Toronto Police Force and quickly came to national prominence. Urgent, controversial, and unsparingly honest, The Skin We're In is a vital text for anti-racist and social justice movements in Canada, as well as a potent antidote to all too present complacency of many white Canadians. I actually had the opportunity earlier this year to attend um, a virtual panel event with Desmond and Ray Cash, who's uh, you know, an Edmonton local. And during the event, he said a quote that really stood out to me and I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, if we don't reimagine the systems that we exist in, then what are we doing except continuing to live in you know, this sort of like system of being enslaved peoples. And I think for a lot of us, 2020 has been a year of heaviness. And I think for me, in addition to all of that, it's been really eye-opening. And one of the things that I've tried to lean into is this idea of agency in action and understanding that although as a Black woman, the world is actively working against me in multiple ways, there's also this great capacity that we're called to imagine and demand a better future beyond this. And I think um, the work of imagining a better reality is not just to secure our very vital and necessary physical survival, but also there's something deeply powerful about understanding and embracing our capacity to enact change. And um, something I think a lot about is what does it look like for Black people to heal? Like beyond justice, what does healing look like? And I think this idea of choosing to imagine a better reality is in its own way healing. And I think that that quote does a really beautiful job of encapsulating that. So I'm really looking forward to witnessing the conversation that's going to unfold. Um, I think just by virtue of existing, for me as a Black Canadian, this book is affirming because very rarely do we contextualize conversations of systemic racism in Canada. And for us as Black people, you know, 
Racism is a lived reality. It's a, con it's a continued violence that the state and our society enacts. And yet, I think there's kind of a dissonance and there's almost um, this removal for a lot of white Canadians. So I'm glad that this book exists. I'm glad and I'm thankful for the work that both Jesse and Desmond do. And I look forward to this conversation. Before I pass it off to them, I'm gonna share a poem with you all. Um, as a poet, as an artist, it's my form of fa favorite form of communication. So here's my poem, alternate ending to the movie Queen and Slim. Imagine me leaning out the side of an old school car, its bones held together by rust and prayer. Picture my head levitating, an afro of a cloud interrupting the sky. In this version of the story, skin folk is kinfolk and everything is joy. The closing scene begins and we see them silk slip saunter onto the runway. The screen fades to black and the words, the revolution will not be televised, appear. We file quietly out into the pews and when the sun begins again, we ride at dawn. The streets flood with snakeskin boots and old school cars held together with rust and prayer. And we watch a storybook tomorrow spin into existence, an alchemy of love spilling and pooling, pulling the pieces back whole again. In this version of the art we create, we imagine the, a future free of bloodstained pavement and we lay to rest the tired echo chamber of a black pain movie dying a slow death. Thank you all so much. And I'm going to pass it off now to uh, Desmond and Jesse. Yeah, I, I want to say thank you. I wanted to say thank you as well to Miran. And I want to uh, just thank you also for, oh, Jesse's back. I want to thank you for talking about our kind of responsibility to imagine something different, which can always feel like so difficult when we're bogged down and when we already have the responsibility of, or the burden maybe I should say, of bearing all of this um, reality of anti-Blackness in our country every day just trying to survive is enough, let alone trying to imagine something different and to do the work to get other people on board. So thank you for your poetry so much. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, thank you, Tamiro. I, I, I peaced out for a second because the internet decided that I, I, I needed to add some suspense into this wonderful conversation. Desmond, uh, good to see you from across the way, sir. Uh, so much kudos for this, brother. This was, uh, I'm going to tell you how this book uh, and how I ended up reading it initially. Um, we started a, a group called uh, the Black Book Running Club, where we would listen to audiobooks while we run for 45 minutes. Then after we run, we sit and we discuss it. And it's a group of uh, predominantly white people, my sister and myself, my wife, and a bunch of other people in our uh, group run. And this was the very first book that we uh, that we were listening to. Um, and it was very, very powerful, poignant, and really got us on the right direction. So first things first, I want to just say thank you for what you've written and how you've written it. Um, it's really doing a lot for a lot of us. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Were you actually able to concentrate on the book while running at the same time? Is that that feels like it takes? Um, well, like I can I can walk and listen to a podcast, but I feel right. like when I get into running, my mind goes into a different place. 
Well, I mean, if I'm being 100% honest, it's the Black Book running or walking or moving club, essentially. The whole idea is essentially just move, listen to an author, uh, specifically a Black author for the most part. Um, my wife is a runner. She's like super fast. And I, I thought it was a cool way for us to do a thing together. But the thing I did was run, walk, wait for them to come back. Then we do drinks and talks. So I was good at the drinks and talk. She does the run. Well, it's a great combo. So either way, yeah, easy to focus for those who could focus. We did a good job. Um, a question about that, though. You're, when, when did you decide that you were writing this? Because I know, obviously, we know the Toronto Star piece, the skin I'm in. But at what point did you say, this is the book I'm going to write? Uh, and what was that process? Uh, I didn't decide to write it until after I was offered book deal which i was not expecting was going to happen but in 2015 after i wrote the skin i'm in for toronto life magazine i started getting a couple of different requests from book publishers being like have you ever considered writing a book mm -hmm. and honestly i never ever had thought of that and um i thought this is interesting and this is really cool and then you know i got an agent and my agent negotiated with me to help me land a deal with um double day books cool being paid to write a book is the wildest thing that's ever happened to me and may still ever happen yeah. and it happened one time like um and coming up with what i was going to do was really difficult because i think that when i wrote about my own personal experiences in toronto life that's what people wanted. They mm -hmm. were like, let's, let's like go deeper into that and like tell us all your stories, give us all your personal anecdotes and tell us racism from your perspective. But I didn't want to do that because racism is not from my perspective. It's not from a personal perspective. It's much bigger picture than that. And I didn't have enough space in the skin I'm in to really delve deeply into what makes racism systemic in canada which is, of course is colonialism and white supremacy mm -hmm. so having a space to do it through a book i decided i want to go a lot deeper i want to cite other people around me who are doing or have done amazing work in this country right talk so about it's interesting you say that too because this is one of the things i was going to uh, bring up was two one of them was the idea of how you wrote it and the idea even of like using months uh as right so that that idea was one thing I, I was curious about but then the other one it's it's very evident like you had mentioned that it's not just desmond's perspective right like you were rarely uh focused on making sure that the intersectionalities of the communities were spoken from you know like whether it be black women uh black migrants queer trans all of this so then i also wonder when you're doing that and speaking from a lens that might not be your own um what if there were any challenges in doing so or how did you do that in a way that was still i guess respectful uh basically what was like the process who do you bring in to get these uh to ensure that the stories are being told accurately even though they might not be your lens so uh as far as the structure of the book and the year yeah in the year 2017 that was when i really settled on how I wanted to put the book together and with the help of, you know, a lot of people around me, but particularly Dion Brand and I had this conversation, which was really helpful. 
and because she is you know literary icon in this country for black people and has done so much thinking and so much work when she and i were talking about book ideas i really tried to listen to her and it was really a kind of start small suggestion that Dion brand gave me which was like take a couple of stories take a couple of ideas work on them one at a time and put them together and before you know it you have a book and uh it sounds easy of course yeah, but so that's it yeah good <laughs> there's no problem right no but problem. i had already been thinking about this for two years at that point and trying right. to figure out exactly what i was going to do dion brand's encouragement to me was be the journalist right you're right you don't have to be the historian which is what i felt like i needed to do is like i felt like i had to go all the way back and in some ways in my book i do give a lot of historical content sure, sure, sure. but the book's really rooted in things that are happening right now and because i wanted it to feel immediate and i was writing in 2017 right right i decided to frame the book as that year every month of the year being yeah. a chapter of the book right um, as far as talking about experiences that are not my own um i think that that's another thing about the practice of journalism that um, has really kind of informed how I work because we're trying to give other stories and other people's the microphone as much mm -hmm. as we can do. Right, right. Um, and so my research led me to lots of amazing writers, researchers, thinkers, people that I'm around in some cases that I really admire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you let other people's words and their thinking speak for themselves. You let other people's actions speak for yourself. So when I wrote a whole chapter about Black Lives Matter Toronto, and then another chapter about, you know, indigenous movements and indigenous resistance in Canada, yeah. Yeah. that's me as a journalist being like, yeah. Here's yeah. What I yeah. Yeah. I'm watching right. it happen that's in right. front of me. Here's what it looks like. Yeah, it was, it, I mean, it's, it's very evident, the journalistic background, but also even the, like, being more of a historian, I love that those pieces just gave, you just allowed us to be able to understand kind of how and why relatively quick while still just being an observer and telling a story, which was uh, a, a different read. It was almost like a, like a documentary, like it was a book documentary, uh, like as a film guy, I was like loving this and that in that way, uh, just how I could digest it. Um, question still, what about, um, you doing your own audio book? So like, that's also, I, I, this is, is this your first, this is your first novel, right? Uh, well, not nonfiction. Yes. But this is my yeah. first nonfiction and, and my first audio book, obviously. Yeah. So like, was that, was that, were you excited about it? Did you, were, is that what you wanted to do? I love it. I love when the author does it themselves, but I always wonder the process of, are you doing your audio book? Did you do yeah, that? And, and, I'm, and I'm really happy that you listened and that you enjoyed the audio book because honestly, I had so much fun doing that. Yeah. And I, I have not listened to it myself in all this time. I, for someone who likes the sound of their own voice as much as I do, you would have thought I would have just got right home after I recorded it and listened, just listened to it every day. <laughs> um, yeah, just put myself to sleep with it and stuff. Right. right but right. no, I've never listened to it yet. But um, reading your words gives a different kind of feeling and a different kind of being present mm -hmm. than reading them quietly to yourself. And um, I worked with this amazing team at, at Doubleday. At, well, they're, uh, Doubleday is part of Penguin Random House. And so okay. some folks uh, 
Zach and Caleb at Penguin Random House worked with me and helped me through this process for the first time. And it's deeply enjoyable. And I'll say this too, actually, Jesse, is that um, there were a couple of choices that I made reading the book that were slightly, slightly, slightly different from the actual text. Right. Just because like, you know, I never really thought about this, but some things are really sacred. So for example, when a person dies, mm -hmm. do you want to say their name out loud when you're reading your book? Or do you want to change that tiny little passage so that that stays a sacred thing that can be on the page, but that I'm not going to say out loud? It's things, it's yeah, 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 yeah. that I never really anticipated being part of the process that were really beautiful and really, really neat. Yeah, they were. And so as I like look through the book and flip through it, even though my first interaction was uh, listening to you, um, I noticed hearing you tell some of the stories, hearing you talk, talk about the atrocities that were happening, uh, it was it was so much more impactful to hear it as opposed to read it for myself than I thought maybe even for Desmond as you're writing these stories and I know many journalists have they, there's a lot of mental health that has to that exists in the idea of the stories that you hear uh, the people confiding in you being that person to tell that story to write that story to speak that story uh, for me it was just one time through it and it was visceral so then I wonder for yourself. A, does it affect you? And, and I imagine it does. You're a human being with a heart. Like, what does Desmond Cole do for his own mental health and soul so he can continue to be this trailblazer that you are? What is there a pro What do you do to take care of you? I mean, it is difficult. I mean, I think that the difficulty for me comes in experiencing these things as they happen, writing about them can often bring a lot of pain. But like, for example, there's a story in my book about a six-year-old girl in Mississauga, Ontario, who was handcuffed in her classroom by the police. She wasn't just handcuffed. She was shackled. She was, they put handcuffs on her wrists and on her ankles. 48 pound, six-year-old grade one black student. And, um, you know, I remember the day that I heard about that story and it bothered me as much then as it still does. And so when you revisit that through writing about it, when you go back and read transcripts and read all the old news stories, read all of the police's excuses for why they would ever put their hands on a child, read all of the excuses of the general public about why the police were justified in doing it. Mm -hmm. And remembering that this is the, the, like, so in some cases, you know, you work somewhere in a, in a so-called journalism, or let's just call it media capacity, and your media colleagues around you want to talk about why it made sense for the police to handcuff a Black child. Right. right. Um, it hurts, mm -hmm. but it's the everyday of it, I think, as much as just sitting down to then focus on writing and to being like, how do I present this in a way that is actually going to be fruitful in some light? Like right. the yeah. hardest chapter to write was the chapter about um, Abdurrahman Abdi. That's right. Yep. And, um, you know, we just saw this past week, the verdict in Ottawa. That That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. 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 We'll get to that in just a moment, but the yeah. police officer who killed him was uh 
cleared of he was found not guilty of all criminal charges this this past wednesday um it's like reliving things and i watched video of that attack things that i don't want to do things that i don't want to have to take in Mm -hmm. my answer to your question about then how do i take care of myself i mean unknown i i have a lot of really amazing friends and close people in my life who help me to listen really more than anything i think that's the best thing i go home and see my mom every once in a while and she sends me home with a whole bunch of food so they don't have to for a couple of days yeah Yeah. um we have relationships in our lives that if we're lucky can help us to deal with some of the difficulty of the day-to-day and i am blessed that I have good people around me to support me. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it is that. I mean, this this is that the work. It's real work. It's emotional work. It takes its toll on everybody, and specifically, you know, when you put yourself out there on a daily basis to do this. I think it's important that even you and I, two men, speaking about what we do for mental health in these times, is also an important thing. Uh, to do, to know, like, you know, small circles, people, family, like how important just those, you know, those really important things while you're doing the stuff to keep you safe, to keep you in a position where you can continue to write uh, and speak and, in, and influence, but we got to take care of ourselves. So I, uh, I ask because I care. Uh, I, no, I, and I, and I appreciate it, but, and I should also say too, though, that um, we really have to, since you brought that up, Jesse, and our responsibilities to one another, what about people who don't have these support networks? That's exactly right. So what are we doing to make self-care not self-care when yeah. you you know have people around you who you need and who need you? Like, um, I think that sometimes the concept of self-care can be taken to this very capitalist and very like, oh, you know, if you have the resources to do so, then, right. you know, you do these things or you do that things or you buy something for yourself. And really, like, I'm lucky because part of my network of people who are, like, helping me and supporting me are people that, you know, sometimes you just check in to make sure that people are all right. Uh-huh. and. Yeah. I think we can never underestimate how important it is sometimes to just be able to do that, even if we have one or two people in our lives that we can do that with, that people cannot do it on their own mm-hmm. and that I can't do it. Um, I spent a lot of days writing this book uh, where I didn't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, I spent a lot of days in the last five years that probably would have been like that, even if I wasn't writing this book. Yeah. And times like that, I I'm like I'm on my own and I'm at my own devices and I just can't do anything. I can't move. Mm-hmm. But you know, invariably roommates, friends, family, the circle yeah. yeah. you're able to rely on hopefully can make things a little easier. You did touch on something right at the beginning of that, that idea of, you know, what what are we doing for those who don't have that? You know, and and, and oftentimes, I mean, we could probably look demographically on that it is easier for some people to even have access to the things that they need if they were uh, by themselves, you know? And this is one of these things where I guess I'm segueing into the idea of, of uh, what 
was mentioned at the beginning, imagining a new system, imagining a new way of doing things, uh, understanding that the system that we currently are living in is broken and needs to be changed. Um, this question I have has to do with being able to change it internally, or is it literally a dismantling of it completely? And I have a feeling I have an idea of what you you think uh, based on what I've read, but I'd love to hear like what your thoughts are, basically uh, that generic system destruction versus trying to make some changes within a broken system. Right. Um, I suppose that if something is broken, uh, it's possible that you can fix it, right? Uh, sometimes when something is broken, you can't fix it. But I don't believe and I don't follow a an ideological tradition that believes that this is a broken system. Yes, working. The Perfect. system that we are under is for the Queen of England. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Queen of England and the British monarchy created something that they called the Commonwealth. Beautiful word. Like that word a lot. The Commonwealth. What a nice idea. Imagine. Mm -hmm. Imagine that it was a Commonwealth. But what that actually meant was that the sun never set on the British Empire and that they tried to plunder their way to conquer the entire world and did a pretty good job for a while, mm -hmm. um, except it was at the expense of our ancestors. It is continuing today to be at the expense primarily of Black and Indigenous people. And so that system, which was created to serve the Queen of England and to pretend that the whole wealth of the world was really her wealth, Mm -hmm. That can't be fixed. Mm -hmm. um, let's actually talk specifically about Daniel Monsion now and Abdurrahman. Yeah, let's do that. Yep. Section 25 of the Criminal Code of Canada says that a police officer in the course of their duties can confront you using as much force as they see fit. And as long as the law and the courts decide that they were acting within their duties as a police officer, it is legal for them to kill us. Mm -hmm. Reimagining a world where that can't happen means saying, why do we have a law that gives a small group of people representing the state the right to take my life? but not the other way around. Mm -hmm. I don't have a right to go out here and take anybody's life. And in a moral sense, not forget the law. the law. The law is trash. God didn't beam the law down from the sky, put it in the Queen of England's head uh, for her to send her ships out all around the world to then go colonize or the King of England mm -hmm. or whomever mm -hmm. we're talking about. But that's where our legal tradition comes from, is from the British uh, monarchy transitioning to a parliamentary system. Why would we have a law in our country that says some people have the right to kill, but not others? This is a fundamental question if we're talking about reimagining. So people will say, give the killer some anti-racism training. Right, right. Give the killer a body camera. Right. No, what about saying that the killer is no longer a legalized killer? All right, so then but this is how do you do that? We repealed Section 25 of the Criminal Code. If we want to just like be really, yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's what I mean. So like, we that's what we should do. But how do like? So I'm asking. Let's say me. How do I? Uh, how do I assist in repealing Section 25? How do the listeners right now? 
like today, action, repeal, how does that happen? So the first thing I will say is that repealing section 25 of the criminal code, which gives the police the legal right to kill us, is it is a sliver of the answer, but I think it's a really, really, really important one. But what we need to be doing more broadly than that is to be asking ourselves really fundamental questions about how we want to live together. Mm-hmm. So um, do we want to live in societies where dominance is the main way that we think of our relationships with each other? Parents dominate their children, husbands dominate their partners, men dominate their partners. Um, the state dominates its civilian population, particularly black and indigenous people. Or can we imagine a system that doesn't do that and that actually provides us with safety, comfort, and an opportunity at life? Because what white Canadian society will tell you is that you cannot be safe without that dominant relationship between the police and the civilian population. That if you don't have that anymore, for some reason well chaos meaning black people will be free indigenous people will be free right that's the chaos that they're talking about absolutely yeah um but people will say obviously what about murderers desmond what i mean daniel monsian is a murderer yeah he killed our brother on his front porch in front of his family members he didn't spend a day in jail for four years while he was awaiting trial which would not happen for a member of the civilian population and then he was exonerated. Daniel Mancion made about $500,000 while he was sitting awaiting his trial that would get him off on these charges. So he was paid to be a killer cop. Um, he's the murderer who's getting away with it, right? But right. if we were even to put Daniel Mancion in jail tomorrow, let's say he had been convicted on these charges, it doesn't bring back our brother. It doesn't take away the harm that's been done to the community and to his family. And so reimagining what we do when somebody engages in harm, when somebody makes us afraid, instead of just saying, have a relationship where cops come in and they dominate everything, have a relationship where child welfare comes in and they just dominate you or social workers or even mental health workers. My mom is a nurse and my mom's job is to care for people. She doesn't have a license to take somebody's life in the act of caring for them. And until we can think about a world where protection and safety cannot be equated with like being able to legally harm people, we're always gonna be like reform, body Mm -hmm. camera, do more right. training for them. Maybe um, make it now, you know, in the United States, Kamala Harris is like, oh, so they killed George Floyd. Let's make chokeholds illegal. Yeah, right. How yeah. dare you dishonor the memory of somebody who was murdered by the police, who was lynched by saying that we should make lynching illegal? Like the okay, so it, of I, dominance that helps that to happen. Yeah. Prisons, police officers, child welfare systems. These are the systems that Mm -hmm. we have to challenge and say, instead of taking your kids away and spending billions of dollars to do that, 
We're actually going to give families the money and supports to live a safe, healthy life with a roof over their head, with food for their family, mm-hmm. instead of sending the police to conflicts within our community, we're going to figure out how to solve those conflicts ourselves. And if people think that that sounds fantasy or Pollyanna, I think it's a fantasy to pretend that these killer systems are just going to one day come and say, you know, we're wrong. We need to start. Yeah, we made some errors. Absolutely. Thank you for letting me know. I didn't see it. And now let's move forward. It's not going to happen. I agree with you. What I am still curious on, because as we're talking, I'm hearing like people who talk to me about stuff with questions and I don't always have the answers. Uh, I'm not saying that you will have all of them here either, but these actionable steps, I really want someone listening today to be able to do something new that they, they that just happened. Like I can do this tomorrow and it will actually move the needle, right? So we have um, the, after, after the George Floyd murder, also the cop was exonerated as well because that's what happens because that's how the system works almost every time but we saw a different response um than the norm and i say a different response specifically from white people um and and the energy they were putting into protesting and and allyship um and i have an idea i think uh of where you may go with this my question is do you think not and i'm not calling it performative activism but those who are really trying their best is this moving the needle is is uh uh, it is, is going out and, and, and protesting, moving the needle the right way, or is there a better way in your opinion where our energy could be put to actually make real change? I mean, I believe in the power of public protest because it has worked for our people for hundreds of years, and it is one of the only ways to publicly say no to acts of state violence and to white supremacy. So I went out during the summer when Regis Korchinski Paquette was killed in our city, and I say killed intentionally, because mm-hmm. when police chase you out onto your balcony and you fall, if that's the story, the police are still responsible for your death. Mm-hmm. So I don't mm-hmm. go with these legal definitions of what is responsibility for somebody's dying, but when the police killed Regis Korchinski Paquette, I marched in the street. We, uh, we marched in the Toronto area for Regis, People came out and occupied in uh, Malton after Ijaz Chowdhury, a 62-year-old man with uh, schizophrenia, was shot and killed inside his own apartment. You know, we've demonstrated for DeAndre Campbell, who was killed inside of his apartment, his house in Brampton earlier this year. Um, I believe in the power of coming out publicly where you can be seen and saying no. Um, I think the part that we need to continue pushing if people want to think of like practical measures is everybody has a local police force. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about policing, ask yourself, like, does taking away some of the police's money, but keeping their role as police intact guarantee our safety? No, it does not. So if we're really serious about our safety, our safety can't be demanded piecemeal. We can't say, Police us with 10% less violence, 10% less surveillance, 10% less arrests and death. Mm-hmm. That's not mm-hmm. what we're asking for. So, like, if people want to do something, they have to say, dismantle, disarm, abolish. Like, mm-hmm. a- and people at their city councils, including in Minneapolis where George Floyd was murdered, this is the demand now that people are making. And so, think I think people think that they're being 
strategic or they're being practical by saying, okay, the black radicals want abolition. Uh, the state wants to keep things exactly the same. So us smart people will come down the middle. Right, and what right, will right. you get? You'll get an increased police budget in the case of Toronto, for example. So our last vote on policing, we, we, we increased our budget. Right, right. And, um, we gave that money so that police can have body cameras because the depraved white dominated society that we live in would like to watch us die next time and call that Jesse progress. Right. So right. I'm like, let's be really careful about this whole down the middle approach. Yeah. 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 And demand the things that we actually want rather than trying to be strategic with our own safety and valuable life. Okay. So Desmond, I'm with you. I'm, I'm doing, if, if ever, if ever I'm going to disagree, which I, I'm not right now, but I'm going to play devil's advocate uh, on certain pieces because I know that some there's some questions I know people would would probably say. So this idea we're talking about, uh, you know, I, we believe in protesting and it's and it's worked before because it works. But then on the same sentence, we're saying what's worked because look where we are. We're basically protesting to a system, right? So there's this idea of like it's working, but actually it's not working because uh, this is the conversation we're having in the book you just wrote. Um, even though we can look at the needle being moved, it's it's just like it just changes how they can kill us. It changes how they can. It just so for me, if I'm this arrived at this planet as an alien, it doesn't look like it's working. Is what I mean. And so like my like so I feel like what a maybe I'm wrong and it is, but it looks like it's not. It just looks different, right? If this doesn't, but it doesn't look like it's working. So I totally totally is it. When I say it works, when I like nothing that black people have been able to do on our own in 400 years on this part of the planet yeah. has been able to rearrange the fundamental like um, realities that got us here. Right. So right. the abolition of chattel slavery was a step, mm -hmm. but it didn't abolish the conditions that created and sustain capitalism that's and right, right. white supremacy because there, capitalism is nothing more than you know the racial exploitation of the world's resources to benefit the few and you know in our historical trajectory that being like white european descended people so like Protesting didn't change that. De right. up, having uprisings until the abolition of slavery didn't change that. Uh, eliminating the segregation and and uh, formal informal ways that black people were kept out of every space in North America after the abolition of slavery didn't change the material conditions. Getting into the workplace, getting into schools, getting into positions now where black people in Canada can be cabinet ministers sure, and sure. leaders of CEOs hasn't changed the material condition. But first and foremost, as human beings, we need to, like I said, we need to be allowed to say no. And mm -hmm. so in all the ways that people resist, they are being effective because they're taking their own power to at least make an expression of resistance and say, my life is bigger than these circumstances. I'm going to try and challenge them. I'm going to try and fight and and push back for my life. Um, the 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 thing is, I suppose, asking black people by ourselves 
yeah. to overthrow these systems of colonialism, imperialism, and white supremacy is pretty impossible unless yeah, yeah. we uh, have those aliens that you were mentioning come down and give us some new toys that we can use to like combat all the guns and all the tanks and all the tasers. And yeah. that's probably not happening anytime soon. But um, we live in a, a white majority country. That's right. The only thing that we can do through our resistance is number one, continue to fight for and protect ourselves as black people. And to do the other thing that black people always do, which is educate the people around us about what our struggle means and why it matters. Because not until white people decide that they don't wanna live this hell that is white supremacy, are things going to change in the fundamental way, Jesse, that I think you're referring to. It cannot be on our shoulders mm -hmm. as black people. We are 3% of the Canadian population and yeah. we are able to shake up along with indigenous peoples in this country, a fraction of the population, look at what our movements are able to do and how much power and learning and disruption that we are able to cause for such a small fraction of the population. But until white people decide that they do not want all these uninherited or unearned inheritances, all these unearned benefits, all this power, well, we're in a difficult spot. My way of yeah, trying to yeah. convince folks, though, that they shouldn't own that privilege anymore and that they shouldn't benefit from it is to fight like hell for myself as a Black person. It's not to go into private rooms with politicians. It's not to beg the average white person to see our humanity. I'm done with all of that. I get to live my life the way I see fit. But mm -hmm. in doing so, hope that my actions and the truth that shines through the work that we try to do allows other people to take it up for themselves. Yeah, I, I, and, and I'm with you too. I feel like what you're saying uh, goes twofold. For example, Desmond Cole right now says he's going to live his life the way he wants to live it. There may be somebody else who is living their life the way they need to live it, but that at that moment might mean they're in an institution and they're doing that thing internally. Uh, there's another person who says, F the entire system, let's dismantle it. What I'm saying is it feels like it's this idea of really getting white people wherever they are to understand the and not just to understand, but to to realize and understand that what this is isn't actually a good thing for everybody. Right. It's, but it's this how do how do you? And then there's the idea, is it on us to do so all the time? Because there's that conversation of why should we do all the work? Um, you know, I and I agree with it, but also if I know some things, I want to tell people some things so they know some things, so they can tell the people they know some things, so ultimately we can change some things. I mean, if I didn't believe that, I couldn't have written a book and I right, couldn't right. have been a journalist for the last 10 years, and I couldn't have spent all of this time mm -hmm. the kind of public work that I do. So right. obviously I believe that it is uh, a value to share knowledge that mm -hmm. believe I am standing on the shoulders of a lot of black people in this country. My book uh, could not have been written with the like without the likes of, you know, Robin Maynard, L. Jones, Idil Abdullahi, Agnes Kaliste. Mm -hmm. um, 
I couldn't have written this book without Black Lives Matter Toronto being an activity for five years. I couldn't right. have written this book um, without being able to document the struggles of people like Dion Renee and, um, you know, like the indigenous water protectors and land protectors who came to Canada's uh, capital, to Parliament Hill, to demonstrate against Canada 150. Mm -hmm. You know, we all need to carry on the tradition of like learning and sharing knowledge. And I think mm -hmm. that's how I've come to the place that I'm at. But what I believe is uh, people, people definitely believe in this notion of persuasion. That the truth yeah. will happen through persuasion. And I am like fine with that as long as that persuasion is people being persuaded by us acting in yeah. service of our lives rather than right. sitting down with them, deferring our yeah, black no liberation struggle to being like, yeah. let me make sure you've got it and you're comfortable with we'll it. And the then second one, making sure comfortable. you're comfortable with and, it. And that's, that's, why, yeah. and that's yeah. why the marching matters. And that's mm -hmm. why... Um, mm -hmm when indigenous people are engaging in land defense instead of just sitting down and hoping yeah, someone will come yeah, and yeah, negotiate yeah. with them, actively taking up physical space and resisting sure. police. That's why when we um, fight for black people who are gonna be deported from this mm -hmm. country and we will do anything to snatch them back from the law, we have to do both of those things at the same time. Our sure. actions in saying like, we will put our lives on the line yeah. with black migrant workers, with black people who are going to be deported, with black sex workers who are being exposed to some of the worst violence, with black queer and trans people, like showing that we're willing to do it is more of a teaching and a learning for me than simply Agreed. talking about it and hoping to do it. But I'm ready to do both. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, when you talk about folks who are in that institution, I always get that question as well, right? I'll be really quick and wrap up here because I think we want to go to questions. But um, people say, do you work from the inside, Desmond, or do you work from the outside? And my thought always when people say that is, like, if you are on the inside, as it were, then what are you doing? Because if you're on the inside and you're there sitting and watching as the state continues its violence against black and indigenous people, I can't just give you credit for being there. Being there, having a black representative, having a black judge, having a black member of parliament, being that person and sitting there and watching as the state does something is not the same as those black people who get into positions of power and use those to make power unseated and uncomfortable and pave a little bit of space. That's how I think we pave the space. It's not by getting there, it's by using the time that we're there to pave right. some space and to push back. And, and that's why I left the Toronto Star because right. I yeah. told everybody I was being part of the solution by being yeah. at a newspaper where I was receiving racist treatment from management no union, no protections, and being told you're writing about race too much, I could have kept my head down and said, but mm -hmm. no, being here and having a column is change. But I pushed until they didn't want me anymore, and I walked away. And You know, that's, you know, that's what you did there, and I think that, uh, for me, when I hear that story and I see that idea that is, yes, you can, and to a point, right? Like, there's a, there's a point where you need to know, I can no longer do what is needed to be done in order for me to a live truthfully as a black man trying to be alive but also there's there 
we can use uh, whatever platforms we have that might exist in the system until we can't. And then when you can't, you gotta, you gotta, you have to understand that you're done there. You know, like you, you almost like you have to know. I'm now doing a disservice to myself and to my people and to people who will come after me. But to a point, I still can use what do I have here? What do I have here? How can I do the thing? And just keep pushing, keep teaching. Well, uh, and and can I say really quickly too that like. As somebody who, for example, has now published a book with a major book publisher, I am also like, I am in these spaces too. Right. I haven't right, right, right. some way to magically separate myself out yeah, from capitalism yeah. and white supremacy mm -hmm. so that I can mm -hmm. like start to lecture other people about how to. But when some of us as black people are carrying the burden of speaking up, right, and others of us who are within institutions want to say anything and take the safe yeah. route. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really hard to move together in a sense of solidarity with one another. You know, it's interesting as I hear this conversation and we're talking about black and indigenous people doing this work. And then I think to myself as white people listening um, and I want them kind of be aware of the privilege of just opting to be like, you know, I think I might just jump in there and help. Or, or I might not like the like just the idea that you can be like, this was good. I like that. I'm going to I might look into that more like I can't ever not be a black man that lives in this system. Neither can you, neither can any indigenous person. And that idea and that privilege that you can just decide when I think is something that you should sit with, but then also understand like how important you are and your decisions are to making this needle move so much faster. Your book uh, is such a powerful chunk. I'm watching it change uh, many white friends, family, uh, and and how they're viewing things, that idea of Canada being this nice spot, right? This idea that Canada is not that racist. And watching one book completely switch it is uh, it's a pretty powerful thing, Desmond Cole. I know you know, you know already, but it's I, I do wonder, like, do you, can you feel the weight of the now, right now, with what you're doing? I mean, something happened this summer when George Floyd was murdered. Mm -hmm. And... Um, this this black liberation movement that has had different incarnations for centuries mm -hmm. was reignited. And really the moment for me of this year that I won't forget for the rest of my life was seeing that police station in Minneapolis on fire mm -hmm. and thinking in that moment, like, is this real? Because I didn't think I was going to be seeing this in the United States of America anytime soon. Right. And, um, you know, once that happened, a lot of work that many of us have put in started being referenced suddenly and people want to buy a book and people want to read something and people want to say, who else is talking about this? Right. And I've been very blessed that I put the work in starting five years ago and this timing coincided so that people thought Desmond's book might be one place to go and look for this information. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, eternally grateful for that. Sure. I think it gives me even more of a responsibility to continue to try and pay that forward and to do things in a way that honors all of the gifts that I have received to be able to share something like this book. Mm -hmm. um, I am very, very skeptical mm 
-hmm. about the longevity of the moment that I acknowledge that we are in. We are absolutely in a moment right now. But my question for the people who are having this awakening by reading and thinking, oh, I didn't really understand what the pervasiveness of mm -hmm. racism, anti-blackness, white supremacy is in this country. How long is that feeling going to last when you have to confront really difficult things like, well, now these black folks are asking, they're not asking, in fact, they're demanding that we abolish the police, that they're demanding that we abolish the child welfare systems. They're demanding that we abolish the prison system in Canada. Do I have, ha have I had enough of a, an awakening to trust these institutions in my country that are supposed to be like foundational mm -hmm. trust these black folks when they say, nah, get rid of that. We're good. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I think that's the part that I'm not so optimistic about because when you go to bed at night and you think about it and you truly think that a prison keeps you safe, that a right. police officer keeps you safe, that the courts keep order, and that there would be chaos without them. And you go to bed at night and you can fall asleep, tricking yourself that the chaos is not actually the world that you're living in right, right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. motivate you to wake up the next morning no, and go, no. we start shaking the table. So I have a question for your historian piece of your brain. Is is something like this, what's needing to happen, what we want to happen, Is has it ever happened? Is there precedence for this in different times that you know of where, uh, a people have said no. Actually, we're going to demolish everything that it was. Uh, well, besides colonialism, but the other way, <laughs> <laughs> but like, like the good way. <laughs> I'm dead. You just uh, did us a really big favor there. But I mean, isn't that what's so funny? Yeah, is exactly that right. we cannot imagine a reordering of the world that does things in our favor. We can That's only right. see the one that took everything away from us as being mm -hmm. the only legitimate way to live. That is why white supremacy is an ideology and not just some negative feeling in people's hearts. It has pervaded our imagination so that something that benefits us so strongly can't even be imagined by the average person or even yeah. by a lot of us as black people. Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. you know, um, I would say, I, I would I would say that like, of course, huge reorderings of the world are possible. And actually, black people from the Haitian Revolution mm -hmm. to the abolition of slavery and you know, Haitian people after their revolution started coming up to the southern United States and going on to plantations and helping uh, enslaved black people in those places to fight back and to rebel and to kill, to kill their overlord masters. You know what would be really cool actually is if nothing else, if we could just start having some more conversations about how black people made a whole lot of change in this country by defending ourselves to the death. Right. And right. That that shouldn't be the taboo subject Mm -hmm. That it is in our society because we don't want to talk about the times uh, where black people have shown no, 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 we are actually willing to die mm -hmm. to allow ourselves to have a chance at liberation. People talk about um, 
Dr. King in the United States, and they talk about Malcolm X, but no one want to talk about the Black Panther Party, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who, who for most people simply represent like this um, black militia who was ready to kill everybody, which I'm like, if you live in an unjust society, I'm fine with that. No one wants to talk about apartheid South Africa and what Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so many people in that part of the world had to do to liberate themselves. Yeah, change does come dramatically sometimes and it's horrible and it's violent. And I would rather not have to participate in that kind of a revolution. But um, I think that's really my message for people is if they don't give us the justice that we deserve, Jesse, that is the only option available to us. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I am. I have a right as a human being and we have a right as black people to defend ourselves. Absolutely. And, and the overthrow of, I mean, we're about to watch a, a, a moment in the United States next week where if the person who's the president right now is seen to be leading that race when we go to bed on election night, there could be a revolution in that country. But there's already a race war burning and simmering in the United States. There has never stopped being a race war, but it's really flaring up in some terrifying ways right now. And do you know what? I believe in no justice, no peace. So if George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud mm -hmm. Arbery in that country, Regis mm -hmm. Korczynski Paquette, Anthony Ost just a couple of weeks ago in Ottawa, well, fell 12 stories to his death yeah. from his apartment building in Ottawa yeah. when the police did a no-knock raid in that city. If that yeah. is the only option that this state offers us, then yeah, give me liberty or give me death, just like these white people say. And when their you know, people say right. it, they've got put in the history book and their heroes, we need to say it too. You say there's a race war and there's been a race war going on. And this is where I say, uh, I feel like war is usually not, there's been a war on a race. Because that's what it's, it's been a war on a race. There's been a race war. Just like even what you're talking about right now and, and having that discussion and that I can feel people getting uncomfortable right now saying, no, refund the police. That's what I'm scared of. Like, no, but this is the thing. The thing is, this is what's been happening one direction for 400 years, one direction. And like the mere like idea of, I feel I'm allowed to speak about protecting myself, speak about protecting my life to the death. It sends fear, fear down so many people. And their only idea then is all I, well, I haven't been scared. I felt safe before. Let me dig my heels in to this very thing that is, is, is basically destroying, uh, you know, a collective humanity that we're, we say we want to have. You know, but it's this idea. It's just like uh, you, you get scared, double down. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the States with how far, and how polarized and how dangerous that can be. I think you're 100% right. There's no, if it doesn't change, that's the eventuality of what things look like. And, and that's some things you have seen in history. That is, that is a, a, a people have a right to protect their own lives. Well, I, I, I would also say too that, um, an act of self-defense is, to me, not the same as an act of violent aggression. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I am in Ontario and right now in Caledonia, in a Caledonia area about an hour and a bit away from me. The people of the Six Nations of the Grand River 
are defending their territory from the Ontario Provincial Police and from a developer named, Fo- named Foxgate that wants to build 1,400 homes mm-hmm. in the Haldeman Tract. There's a treaty. There's a Haldeman Treaty that gets violated every year and every day in this country where the British who first came and decided again by the queen and God's right that this land was theirs, when they fought in the American Revolution, they said, uh, we're grateful to the people of the six nations of the Grand River for fighting against the Americans with us. So here, Haldimand Treaty, Haldimand Tract, six miles on either side of the Grand River from the mouth of the river to the source of the river forever. They said forever, that's your territory. And then the British crown immediately said, well, when we said forever, we didn't really mean forever. And when we said all this territory, we didn't really mean all of it. So now today, that was 1784. Today, in 2020, 95% of the Haldeman tract no longer belongs to the Six Nations. Mm -hmm. So when they are in the street, when their weapon is blockading or barring access to a road, when their weapon is putting their bodies on the line as police come with bullets, rubber bullets, tasers, Mm -hmm. dogs, Mm -hmm. that is not an act of violence to me. And people need to start, when they think about these ideas, start to think about the difference between an act of violence and an act of self-defense in order to preserve your life and your opportunities for the future. So, you say what I hear you say that, and I hear a police officer say that in the complete flipped reverse. It's a, the reverse of that. I felt my life was threatened, so I was I was acting in self defense. This is the problem. Yeah, but nobody, nobody, nobody asked the police. That's the thing is that what we need to do is we need to stop giving the police license to put themselves in situations yeah, yeah, where absolutely. no one is asking them to put their life at risk. Absolutely. So yeah. when um. When in our communities, we, because the the police, actually, what they're doing tonight in Six Nations is right. they're releasing videos of people smashing a window of a police car saying, see, we, we weren't the ones right. that came here and initiated anything. But when you bring guns into yeah. people's community... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the one initiating the violence. So we just don't need the police to be there. We didn't need the police to come to that six-year-old girl's school. Mm -hmm. We don't need um, the police to arrest black children for having a marijuana joint in their pocket. Like, they can feel scared. Because you know what? If I'm a big bully and I want to take away your joint so that you can't smoke it, and that that's the only reason that we're having a confrontation. I can say I'm scared of you, but right. I don't need to be putting myself in that situation in the first place. And so much of the confrontations between Black people in our state, so much of the discipline that Black people face at work. I mentioned sex work earlier. Like sex work is an entire profession in this country that puts police in a situation where they don't need to be in because no one wants a police officer in that situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Same thing with having cops in our schools. And I know in Edmonton, there's a lot of folks yeah. out there right now who are like waking up to the idea that, wait a minute, maybe the best way to make an education better for our children is not to put yeah, a police, police officer no. between them and the teaching staff and the administration. But 
These are choices. So when you put the cop in the school, he's going to say he felt threatened before he has to tackle or beat up or tase a sure, student. Sure. But yeah, 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 yeah. Abolition means, again, relationships of dominance. It means not thinking that the way we engage with black students in a school is through an aggressive and domineering relationship. And that if we can't have a one-to-one -one equal relationship, that person doesn't belong in an education. Yeah, they shouldn't environment. be there. So Desmond, I want to say this before, because I know we're going to wrap up pretty soon, but I feel like this would be a, a really neat thing. I'd love to hear from your lens. So let's imagine, let's use our imagination for a second. And we are, we've arrived at this place where we've the, the goals are hit that you and I can just sit there and just be humans walking down. I don't have to be a black man. I'm a black man for sure. But even if I have to say that, what does that look like? Get Tell me, what the, just paint the Desmond picture of what that would look like. The absolute destruction of the capitalist system. Um, capitalism is said to have created more wealth than any other system in human history. And yet, Black people in this country are poor. Indigenous people in this country who were stewards of the land for millennia before anyone else got here are worse off, are worse off than when, uh, than before the British and the French got here as colonizers. Um, worse off. I cannot stress that enough. So my ideal means that everybody has a home Everybody has the safety of physical safety, like a roof over your head, food in your mouth. This is the, you know, I, I, I heard somebody here, a conservative loser whose name doesn't get mentioned on this broadcast because it's not worth it. But he was saying that it's like a Marxist fantasy abolition, you know, that this yeah. fantasy that we don't get killed by strange white men with guns. It, I, if we are going to fantasize, like, let's go all the way. Let's not just talk about the absence of violence, right, Jesse? Right. Like, let's talk about what it would mean for Black people to not have to be in the bind that we're in. Right. Because we can feed ourselves, because we can clothe ourselves, because there is no system taking all the wealth out of the continent that we came from so that people can have nice things in other parts of the world and leaving us with child laborers, child soldiers, dictatorial governments and corruption. Like, like the thing that ends all of this is the thing that started it. Capitalism, the quest to take all the world's resources and give them to a small number of people. The Jeff Bezoses of the world today, they're not individually responsible, but they are like manifest of a system mm -hmm. that says no matter how much wealth created, it will never be distributed equally. And until the day where we decide that that's what we want, that the wealth of this planet belongs to everybody and not to a few people, um, I don't see how we get out of this situation. And so I'm, uh, I believe in socialism. Right. I don't think capitalism is ever going to be reformed. And I don't think that people are really serious when they talk about reforming it. And I, I, I think that the environmental stewardship that indigenous peoples in this country talk about, the need to treat the earth as if we are visitors, 
and that we have to leave it in place for the generations to come. That is not a capitalist value. Making sure everybody has a house and food to eat is not a capitalist value, but we are on a path to destruction. Unless I, I don't, yeah, I don't disagree. 100%. Unless we start imagining um, something far better. I love it. I love it. I could do questions forever, but I know the audience has some for you. We got some Q&A time. But we'll jump right in there now. Uh, how are we going to do some questions? Are we, am I going to read them out? They're going to show up? I've got the I've got the questions and I will I will feed them to you as they they've come in they, so I'm coming All live right, well, and coming we're in hungry. The feed me let's All go right. I want right. to start by say, saying to you both thank you for for reaffirming that it's not really a radical idea to want to live in safety and dignity as a human being so right. yeah uh, just that's just my own comment there but the one question is uh Desmond, what are the key things from Heather, Matt, and McCready is what are the key things, a part of the vision and life you are living now, the way you want it? What are the key things that are part of that? Um, so what, what are the key things? Uh, could you just repeat a little? I'm sorry. What are the key things that are part of the vision and life you are li li living now? So you're saying you're living your life the way it is. What are one or two key elements to take away out of that in terms of living your own life. I think you've answered it, but just give them a quick Well, I, a quick I mean, um, you know, abolitionist thinkers like Miriam Kaba and like Ruth, uh, Wilson Gil uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, like, I, they teach us about these relationships of dominance that I'm talking about. When we say we want to get rid of these harmful state systems, as I mentioned, people say, well, there'll be some kind of social anarchy. There'll be some kind of chaos that won't allow everyone, meaning the white majority, to live nicely, to live in a safe way. And I think that the biggest thing that we all need to start to do, and it is a process, it's not reading one book and then being like, ah, I've got it. It's a process of thinking and challenging the ways that we live in our lives every day to say like, why do we think it's necessary to live like that? Why do we believe? What has taught us mm -hmm. that unless you can control other people by force, with cages, with police officers, with expulsions from school, with suspension and expulsion from your workplace, that people won't do what we want them to do. And in my own life, I'm challenging myself with that every day because I have grown up in a society that told us that that's normal. And so when I notice that, for example, I'm out in the world and, um, I'm thinking about things and reinforcing these ideas, I have to try and stop myself. Only a few years ago, I would have said, no, I do think that some people like really need to go to jail. And I would have been stereotypical like everybody else. Oh, the murderer needs to go to jail. The rapist needs to go to jail. And if somebody were to ask me after, does sending them to jail make for a safer society in the long run? 
Well, I wouldn't have an answer because all my thinking is short term. I can, I'm, I'm in a state of crisis and fear, right? And so I don't want to think about what will happen 10 years from now after we've put a whole bunch of black and indigenous people in jail. I just want to think about what will happen tomorrow if we do it. And what will happen tomorrow is I'll feel a little better. I'll sleep a little better. I'm fine. Murderers and rapists should be in jail. But an honest society starts to say, for example, that hasn't worked and it's been tried for decades and it's not going to work because it's not meant to help people. It's meant to solve your short term fear and defer the problem, pretending that maybe later it'll be gone or the criminals will go to criminal island and leave us alone forever and we'll be fine. So. I think the biggest principle is like, you know, if you heard me on the radio a few years ago saying like some people should be in jail, sitting with that and being like, why did I believe that that was going to help? What were the ideas that taught me that that was okay? And what do people really need in our communities when they engage in harmful behavior? Do they need to be punished? Do they need to be taken away from their families and their communities? Do they need to be put in a cage? Do they need to be humiliated? And what might we begin to do differently? I am not the preacher here because I have to, as they say, decolonize my own mind every single day when I wake up. It's an ongoing process is, is a thing that I, a, I've, I've learned from you and even in the activism space and how many times I have said a thing that looking back, I'm like, that, that was actually harmful, but I believed it. And then why did I believe it? And just re-asking those questions, it's a it's a very helpful rabbit hole, I think. And, you know, it's a humbling one too. I mean, it's, an, it's a nonstop journey, uh, I think, that we all, a lot of us have to be on. Two, two of my really good friends, Adil Abdullahi and L. Jones, have been putting on a series called No Life Left Behind, where they talk about people spending life in prison in Canada. And if you want to get an education about what it means to challenge our ideas of incarceration, yeah. No Life Left Behind is a series that I highly, highly recommend you Google and check out because we can challenge the ways that we think. And the people who are leading that conversation are people who are incarcerated today. Mm -hmm. And that's what their work focuses on. And I've learned right. so much from just being close. Cool. Right. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think No Lives Left Behind is a very good place to, to cut this conversation. I'm sure we could carry on and need to carry on for much, much longer. But we do have to take, uh, take note of the fact that, Desmond, you're in Ontario. It's getting late over there. Uh, our audiences have stuck with us for more than an hour as well here. So thank you for, thank you for your dedication to this. But uh, Jesse, thank you for leading a wonderful, wide-ranging conversation on this. It is was every bit as extraordinary as I'd hoped it would be. So we look forward to having you at Starfest and at St. Albert Public Library again soon. But uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you and so Desmond. much. Uh... And yes, Desmond, that, just thank you for writing your book. Thank you for, for everything you said this evening. And um, wow. That was that was some conversation. So thank you both. And um, just as yeah, thank you. I just want to say thank you to you, Peter, and to Starfest for making this possible. All right.
It was absolutely our pleasure. And just a reminder to people, as we end this conversation and move on, you can buy the book online at the Edmonton's two independent bookstores, Glass Bookshop and Audrey's Books. Please go online, buy them, order. There's the cover. There you can see it, Jesse throwing it around or moving it across the screen. And um, just also thank you yet again to our technical team here who was working through some spotty internet this evening. Thank you, thank you. And do visit Starfest online. Watch the reruns. The shows are up there. So please do watch them. If you didn't catch all of this, listen to this talk again later on. Also, we've got a couple more events coming up. Register for them. We'd love to have you back. So from me, good night. Until next time.